Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast all about the best video games that we know. My name's Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Lockdown 2, baby! And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. I won't let you get away with that. <laughs> and we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Oh, different bit of intonation, that'd be funny. <laughs> Announcement! Announcement! If you'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how you can find us on our various social media platforms. We have a YouTube channel, search for Our Three Cents. You can find all of our amazing video content there, such as streaming content, like myself and my pirate crew playing through a tall tale on Sea of Thieves, Chris attempting to beat my Super Mario Maker 2 Super World, and there are also a whole load of other videos that you can check out, including our recent Our Three Cents approved videos, which are a visual celebration of games that have appeared on all three of our lists. And they're really good fun. It includes some streaming content of us playing the games and all of the individual parts of us talking about the games from the previous episodes. We also have a Instagram channel. Our Instagram thing is at O3C Podcast. We've got our videos on there and loads of fun images and uh, it's just a great way to engage with us. And we also have a Patreon page, which is great for those of you who want to get a bit more out of the podcast by putting a little bit of, a little bit of support our way, a little bit of monetary support. And we've got some great perks on offer, such as exclusive full bonus episodes, deleted scenes, <laughs> hilarious outtakes and uh, loads of other bits as well so do head over to patreon.com slash our three cents and check that out so this week we have our 14th favorite video games of all time one but four before we do that i'm excited to return to the quiz because we have another rollover week and there are just <sighs> two points separating you so this could be a chance for minty to draw level oh no, <laughs> no. oh it's uh, hmm. Yeah, I don't like the pressure, but I'll give it my best. That's all we can ask for. The Sega Dreamcast oh, no. was released in what year? Uh, 98. 2000. 98 is the correct oh, answer! Really? Whoa! Oh, congratulations yeah. to Minty! Woo. Well oh. done. And, and Minty's level. It is 43 oh. points all. My oh. goodness me. I'm I'm gonna Bravo quit. I'm gonna Minty. quit this thing. I'm out. I'm done. Level. I have to uh, give credit where credit is due. I uh, only remember that because I've never owned a Dreamcast or any Sega console. Nobody did. <laughs> but I do remember that that's the year it came out because, for some reason, one of my friends in year five had like a, a plastic wristband like you get from I don't know, fucking Butlins or something. And it had the uh, the Dreamcast logo on it, and that was in 1998. There we go. There we go. Impeccable memory. So what have we been playing this week? You know what? I'm going to tell you what I've been playing this week because I've been playing a little bit of a lot of different games. Yeah, it's one of those ones, is it? One of those ones. So I'll go through it quickly. I finished Resident Evil Revelations. Really, really good. Very excited to play Resident Evil Revelations 2. Good. Played a bit more of Doom 3, which is is fine, but I'm stuck on a bit and I've no idea how I'm meant to get past it. And it's really annoying me. So I've put that down. You have to simply kill the demons. Yeah, yeah. It Like, I wish that was it, but it's navigating your way through some system with like an elevator and... I, I, I just I literally don't know how to move on to the next area. Um, ah. So, yeah, it's it's wound me up a bit. And it's it's the sort of thing where it's not 
it's very difficult to know what to search for in like a walkthrough to find that part because it's just like yeah the doom guy i'm i've killed some demons and the, <laughs> they're, it's, it's all a bit dark but i've got a gun and there are some corridors and i don't know where to go next i was the same with a ladder yeah because it was it was tucked around the corner yeah architecture the greatest villain in the doom games <laughs> it is classic it, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah famously I have played a bit more of the Crown Tundra, the Pokemon Sword DLC. I've now caught Calyrex and the Black Ice Beauty. I'm going to plough on to get the Legendary Bird Galarian variants and the new Regis, but that'll probably be it for me because the Pokemon that you can get, the Legendary Pokemon you can get in the Dynamax quests, I've already got in my like Pokemon home already. Although it is, it's quite nice to see that the Ultra Beasts are returning from Sun and Moon, which I think fits really well, actually, with the, the Dynamax battle setup. Mm. And I, I think if we were able to do some co-op Minty, I'd be a bit more inclined to, to, to give that a go. I thought that might be quite fun if we can find time to do that. That'd be nice. We could, yeah, I'd, I'd very much like to do Dynamax adventures with you because mm. I read that the, the chance of um, any Pokemon you catch being shiny is like one in 300 oh one, one in 100 if you have the shiny charm uh, which i do which i do so yes i'm going to be completing the galar pokedex to get the shiny oh. charm and then we'll be ready to go oh that's great well i look forward to doing that i also caught up finally with all of the dlc for super smash brothers ultimate because we <laughs> had a little session a rather unsuccessful session of playing together online with that because of you can have a look on YouTube and see see what happened there. We needed to record some some footage of that for the most recent Hour Three Cents approved video, and in doing that, I thought, well, I'll, I'll try out some of the new fighters. Stuck people like I can't, I, don't, I literally don't even know who the fuck they are. It's like Terry, is it from Terry Terry something? Bogard from Fatal Final yeah, Fight? There we go. Fatal Fury. There is was it one of those. Feet of Flames was it? No, <laughs> Michael uh, Flatley from Riverdance. <laughs> Michael Flatley. There was. There's another Fire Emblem, or possibly another couple of Fire Emblem characters. There is uh, one of the Arms Fighters. There is the Hero from Dragon Quest, and there's Steve from Minecraft. And there are some really fun mechanics in there. I like the crafting mechanics that, that Steve brings with him. It adds a new sort of twist to it. It was good fun. It was really, yeah, it was nice to sort of play, play some. It's such a good game. It's so slick. The other game, or one of the other games I played, is the demo for Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, which I had a fantastic time playing. It's it's the first, like, hour of the game, basically, and your save file will continue over into the full game. So, it, it yeah, so it's... It, it felt worthwhile to put effort into it and uh, and explore some of that. And I I must say, I am so excited for that game. I think it's it's a fine line between that and Animal Crossing for the game that I'm most excited to play in like from this year. It's yeah, it's so good. It's it's amazing how well they've retained the uh, the style of uh, Breath of the Wilds to the point where I can't tell if it's running on the Hyrule Warriors engine. Well, you know, like the Warriors engine, or it's actually been made in the Breath of the Wild engine. It just feels so it's it's so harmonious between the two. It's 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 extraordinary. I've seen online a couple of people quibbling about the frame rate in the demo, which I didn't notice at all. And I don't know whether or not that's just because I was having so much fun I didn't notice, or whether or not I just didn't happen to encounter any. Were you playing on the TV or in handheld? Handheld. Oh, really? Yeah. The first Hyrule Warriors isn't super smooth but no no it never bothered me like you know we've said collectively how many hours we put into that game 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I don't think it, it detracts from it. I, th- I think it's fine. Like I said, I just don't even notice it. I notice it more when it when the, in Hyrule Warriors, the rare times it, it flicks up to 60. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And it's like, oh, wow, okay, there we go. But I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm hoping that it comes out on the 20th and my baby is due on the 30th. <laughs> so I'm hoping to have a bit of playtime there. Small we'll window. See. We'll see. <laughs> I also picked up Part-Time UFO, the lovely little Howl Laboratories game, which I, I, I played on mobile a bit of, and it's been ported over to the Switch, and it's it's just lovely. It's such a delightful game. It's very, very simple. It's uh, very charming, and it's like classic Howl Laboratories. There's a lot of stuff to collect in there. It's just really lovely. It's really nice. I'm looking forward to trying out the co-op mode in there because apparently that's very, very good. And uh, yeah, it's nice to be able to play it with a, an actual joystick rather than on a touch screen. Um, so I've, I've been enjoying that. I've got no problem in kicking back in the evening, putting my feet up whilst my wife is doing some knitting and we're watching some crap reality show and I'm just, you know, being a part-time UFO. It's lovely. But and you're going to wonder where I found time to do this because... If you add together all the time I've put into all of those games, it is entirely eclipsed by the amount of time I've put into Pick Pick. Hey! Pick Pick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a good game. It is. It's incredible. Yeah. Like £6.75 well spent on eBay. Yeah. And apparently, according to Gene, one of the Patreon subscribers, he messaged us in our Discord channel to say that he could only find it for, like the cheapest he could find it on eBay was like, 10 quid Ooh. and so you have you are being responsible i think for a surge in the value of that game well, well done chris I t- i'll tell you what i've had one of our american what listeners message me on twitter asking about importing a copy of it <laughs> because it never came out over there so it's it's quite expensive to to get across the water kind of thing yeah and and another one of our, our patreon subscribers uh rob wade has also picked it up i believe superb so I, i've definitely had a positive influence on on people that just love picross and want something a little bit different definitely it took me a little while to get used to some of the puzzles obviously because they're you know they're they're just a bit different to other logic puzzles i've played Magipex, which is one of the, or Magipex, which is the one you sort of um, highlighted. It took me a while to get used to. It that. does, doesn't it? It's got a bit of a learning curve to kind of understand how everything is connected. Yeah, and just recognizing those patterns. And I think because it's it's so similar to Minesweeper in terms of giving you a number and then telling you how many squares are filled around that number. The main thing is that it also it counts the central square yeah. of the three by three square which obviously you don't have in minesweeper and so sometimes i need to just like squint a little bit to sort of focus on the little nine square area to accurately see which squares have been marked or not because i can't just immediately see it yeah but then i'm getting the more i'm doing you know the the quicker and slicker i'm getting and uh, the drawing ones are great they're like flow and, and path picks they're fantastic although to be honest i found the earlier ones slightly harder because you don't have the color differentiation yeah, yeah so it felt like there white, were more variables and also you're not trying to fill in the whole grid which you are doing in path picks because there's quite a lot of squares that are meant to be left blank and and that makes it you know a bit more of a challenge because there wasn't a clear and definite path for all of them so you can't just go charging in as i would in you know in say in path picks um, but again, it's it's just great. It's really great. I'm, and I enjoy the maze ones. It <laughs> hasn't stopped blowing my mind that I'm solving a maze that's then making a picture. It's and lovely, I know that sounds it? really silly. It's really lovely. It's so, it's, yeah, it's so clever. I think I've done about 30 of each now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. 
That's been my week. What about you guys? Minty, how's your week been? Not as brimming. Not as stuffed. <laughs> what have I been playing? I have played. I've also been playing The Crown Tundra. Marvellous. I got Calyrex. I got both horses, all three legendary birds and all five of the Regis. It can be done on Pokemon Home uh, and two accounts on your Switch, which is just great. So now I'm on Pokemon Home trying to find somebody who wants something I've got a duplicate of for a Zacian. Zacian? Zacian? Zacchaeus? Zacharias, the dwarf up the tree in the Bible. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've also seen that once you've done the birds, you can also get the uh, the musketeers. Ah, the uh, Cobalion and... Terrakion, Verizion, and Keldeo, which is cool. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's a, yet another little bit of life that this DLC has put into the game, which is nice. Lovely. Um, so that's that. I've also just been mopping up all the side quests and timed quests in uh, Xenoblade Chronicles. Marvellous. Um, I've just reached the point of no return after the Maconis core. So now I'm right at the bit that I got to playing it on the new 3DS. So after this point, I have no idea what's going to happen in the story. It Well, that's exciting, isn't it? It's just a big old party. Everyone has a grand old time. Mainly, yeah. Everybody meets up on the Bionis head and just hugs it out. (laughs) (laughs) I am very much looking forward to you reaching the end of the game hearing your reaction to it and possibly having a spoiler warning to conversation about it on here yeah uh, that's that's what i've played this week actually that's that's great that's that's a lot of game you've done yeah how about you chris what, what have you done this week uh, i've done a fair fair few games this week because it's the the end of my half term so I, I go back to work properly tomorrow and then it'll be a few more weeks of me saying oh i've got no time for anything but for this week, at least, um, I started Mario Sunshine Yay. after beating 64 last week. I've collected maybe the first 15 or so shines, so I haven't made a huge dent in it yet. But I've really enjoyed just getting used to it being slightly different to 64. Yeah. I really like the blue coins. I know I know you said that was kind of like mm. a, a difficult bit to kind of grab them all. But I, yeah, I, lo- I loved it. It's, it's a lot I of fun. And, and it reminds me a lot of like essentially the moons in Odyssey. Yes. Because it's like there's some simple environmental puzzles, like spray this mark to, to unlock something somewhere else. And it's then like a time challenge to get there. You know, climb to the highest point of a stage. Oh, there's a blue coin up there. There's there's a lot of those kind of just natural things that you might do anyway. And it kind of rewards that yeah. sort of uh, inquisitiveness in you as a player. Yeah, absolutely. The game, it hasn't grabbed me as like wholly as 64 did yet. But I think it's just, I feel slightly more burnt out on Mario than you did, having sessioned like 16 games back to back. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I, I will fully, you know, I, I do fully intend to get through it 100%, um, but it will be a slow burn, I think, over the next month or two. Yeah. Have you managed to get to any of the secret levels you do without Flood? Yes, I have done a few of those. That... Like the pure, the pure Mario 3D platforming. They're really hard. <laughs> well, a little bird told me that you are hilariously bad at them and you died about 50 times on the first two levels without flood so uh... yes that would, that would be my brother had sent you a uh, a nice little message when i was cursing the switch he did he did have your back a little bit because the message i replied to him was can you get a video of him getting pissed off that would be amazing <laughs> so he didn't he didn't he, he didn't get that so he, he did oh. have your back <laughs> thank you tom but no the, the thing i found most difficult is not having a long jump and it does it does take some getting used to just because so much of like the strategy of playing 64 
is is in making those long jumps and being able to kind of correct that jump in the air because you have quite a lot of control over your your motion once you're airborne as it were uh, and in sunshine you've got a different kind of move set or, or like a not totally different but slightly refined and, and slightly more limiting and that's taken a bit of getting used to but they are really fun they are really really fun and like i said i i, I will play more of it i i would like to get through all of it so yeah I'll, I'll let you know as the weeks go on how i do the two games i've actually played the most of though this week have both been on the computer again not because i've been working at the same time just because i've had my laptop out quite a lot the first one is is a game I had actually previously beaten this year, but on the Switch, and I don't remember talking about this on the show. It's like a simple jigsaw puzzle game called Glass Masquerade. Mm. And and basically you, you reassemble Art Deco themed stained glass artworks. And it's really, really nice. And I think traditional jigsaw games aren't ever particularly fun on, on consoles or handhelds because they involve manipulating tiny pieces and spinning them around and lots of trial and error Mm. and that's stuff that's quite enjoyable when it's tactile like a real puzzle but absolutely miserable when you're trying to do it digitally on like a on a 2d page kind of thing but glass masquerade is like it's more about just seeing the appropriate shapes because all of them are unconventional and jagged because they're meant to be bits of glass and and you know it finds their placement quite simply the puzzles never have that many pieces i think the biggest ones are only like 70 pieces maybe and it always makes sure that the bits you pick up are the right orientation to then slot into the hole when you do find it and and it's just really relaxing fun it's one one pound 39 at the moment on uh, steam pick it up i would I, highly I, recommend I'm it. doing that right now <laughs> I, I think with games like that it's, it's weird how games like this sometimes carry very certain memories they sort of attach themselves to things that are going on at the time. Mm. And, I, and I feel it's, it's prescient that I picked up this game again this week, just as we're about to enter a second period of national lockdown in England, because I played the first one through to completion in one sitting, the night our first lockdown was announced. And, and I know that vividly because Georgia and I weren't living together at the time. You know, we were both sat in our respective homes as, as our good pal Boris told us that we couldn't see each other in person for three weeks at the time, which ended up mm. being three months and and it was it was a horrible sort of evening to have that sort of realization that things are going to be quite different for some time but at the you know having this game that i picked up for probably about 79p on the eShop was a nice distraction and it and it's really a game that you can sort of just have on in the background and not really worry too much about like you're not penalized for going slowly you're not penalized for making a mistake and i think it was just something quite nice to use to sort of come to terms with the new normal and maybe I'll use it again this time as, as I kind of work my way through it again. The other game I played, which has come out of absolutely nowhere, it was in a Steam bundle for, for super cheap for just some you know keys for, for unknown indie games. Uh, and it's a typing game called Backspace Balkan. It's, it's not unlike the old House of the Dead 2 spin-off, Typing of the Dead. Mm, oh yeah, I love that. Or, or the Pokemon-themed Pokemon typing adventure on the DS. But this is essentially wrapped up as a first-person dungeon crawler and you have to ascend a tower that's full of enemies, dispatching them one by one by typing out their dialogue verbatim. And what I really liked about it, it means that you you read their lines and you then retell the story yourself as you are writing it in. And it's a well-written game. So I didn't mind kind of essentially like copying the stuff that was on screen. It's funny, it's self-aware, it's very, very clever. And, and what I thought was really interesting as a way of like framing a game like this, rather than just having odd words pop up that you type, like in Typing of the Dead, you're using these whole sentences as they speak to you and your ammunition for combat is counted as the spaces that you use in your sentences and to refill your space gauge you have to read like signs dotted around the dungeons and then backspace them away to absorb the space energy which is like a really quirky sort of way around 
you know, making it so there is some resource management in this game. But the other thing I really loved about it, you have to type as quickly and as accurately as possible, obviously, and it's, it's quite a, a difficult game. You need to be a pretty proficient typist, but you also need to be on the lookout for any potential contractions in the dialogue that you can make, like making you are become your or they will become they'll. Uh, because using that, it gives you like bonus spaces back for your kind of ammo count. It's just a really clever game, really, really niche, but I've had a really nice time with it. It's it's only a few hours long. It's only a few quid, I think. So yeah, Backspace Balkan, if if anyone really likes typing games like Mavis Beacon. I've got Typing of the Dead on uh, on Steam and I absolutely love it. It's, it's really fun. It's great. It's yeah, it's what a ridiculous concept. But <laughs> it, there it is. Yeah. So shall we move on to the rankings? This week, we are starting with My Game. Jonathan Dunn. Love that song. <laughs> my Game this week should be higher, I think. <laughs> the old classic. So join us next week. <laughs> I think it's one of the greatest games ever made, and it resonated with me on a level so deep that the echoing chasm of my soul was filled to bursting points. However, looking at the 13 games still to come on my list, I pretty much feel the same about all of them as well. (laughs) One thing we've spoken about in the podcast several times is how games have an incredible way of connecting people. Me and Chris have spoken before about how our mutual love of video games has ended up being the connective thread between us, though time and space and circumstance have separated us in various different ways over the years. For many years in school, we were inseparable. When we both went off to uni, modern technology wasn't where it is now, and inevitably we drifted apart as we weren't able to send multimedia WhatsApp messages, engage in big group discussions about our hobbies in an online forum, and we didn't, you know, have time to write letters to each other. But, you know, (laughs) but we always kept in touch, whether that was during the holidays when I'd come back from uni and we'd go for a pint down Ramsgate Harbour and catch up, or if, you know, when you were playing nearby on a tour with your band, you would come and crash at my house in Wales. (laughs) But obviously something happened to bring our interests crashing back together in such a grand form that we would dedicate hours every week to talking about video games and indulging in our deep and profound love of this shared hobby again. We've mentioned before about games that we've bugged each other to buy, like Chris did with Super Crate Box, or I'm pretty sure I bullied both of you into getting Dead Cells. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't think I've ever been as compelled to get a game than when Chris, pretty much out of the blue, after, you know, we hadn't properly touch base with each other in a few months you messaged me to say that i had to experience the witness oh <laughs> oh. oh this is i've just punched the air <laughs> this is not a video podcast but <laughs> as an aside i i don't really like talking on the phone it, it fills me with a weird kind of anxiety We'll come on to the journey through The Witness in a bit, but I remember right at the end when I messaged you to say I'd finished it, and instead of messaging me back, you called me on the phone, yeah. probably for the first time in over a decade, and yeah, easily. we chatted for well over an hour, the most we'd talked in a very long time, and, and just indulged our wanton appreciation of this absolute masterpiece. My anxiety quickly subsided as I rediscovered that familiar and comfortable patter in chatting about games that we used to do on our parents' landlines I mean, literal decades ago. <laughs> and obviously that was just a taste of things to come as we now do that sort of chat several times every week and it's just the best thing. <laughs> but The Witness didn't just reconnect me and Chris, it also formed a deeper connection and a bonding point for my other centurion as well. 
uh, minty. <laughs> and there's something so simple and basic and universal about the puzzle types in The Witness. And, and I was playing The Witness on my custom gaming PC build that I mentioned before when I was talking about Bioshock Infinite. And this was during a time that me and Minty lived together. And it wasn't uncommon for you to come and sit on my bed and keep me company while I gamed. Sometimes gaming on your own, sometimes watching me, sometimes playing with me in the case of Rayman Legends. But but when it came to The Witness, I, I, I just remember your gentle and kind presence as I was exploring the island. And this was also during a brief spell where you were working with me at the offices of the representative body of the church in Wales. Ah, uh, yes. And so all-consuming were the puzzles in The Witness that if I was struggling with a particular puzzle, I would draw it out in my notebook, perhaps with a few other puzzles I had yet to beat, and take them to the office with me. And then throughout the day, me and Minty would pass the sketches back and forth between us as we tried to solve them together. The fact that this uncompromisingly modern game could also be accessible without context and with a pen and paper is a true testament to just what an astonishing game Jonathan Blow has made. So we know from what I've been saying that The Witness is a puzzle game set on an island. But let's dive into it a little more, as I have the honour of it appearing on my list first. Let me give you a bit more context. So, Jonathan Blow is a man whose work has already appeared on the podcast in the form of Chris's 79th favourite game, the indie classic Braid. Banger. And anyone who knows anything about Jonathan Blow knows that he is certainly one of the more cerebral video game auteurs around. Braid is a real testament to that in terms of its layered and complex narrative that defies classification and interpretation essentially that was a puzzle game too but it stood for so much more than that it's slick presentation serving as the platter for a roast commentary on the nature of existence love life and nuclear war (laughs) (laughs) so braid came out in 2008 and the witness was announced as jonathan blow's next project in 2009 but such was his style not to rush a project he refined it and refined it and refined it within an inch of its life, and it was eventually released seven years later, in 2016. And because of the immense success of Braid, it allowed him to have entire control over the development of The Witness, whilst also expanding its scope and scale significantly. And it's an entirely different setup to Braid. It's a first-person exploration adventure game, inspired by classic games such as Myst, And it is set on a mysterious island that is rendered in the most idyllic art style, all cel-shaded and saturated with some of the most gorgeous lighting I've ever seen in the game. The island itself is is so artfully constructed. A a team of artists, architects and landscape architects designed every inch of it, and it was built in its own game engine. Like I said, it's it's, it's such a, a singular vision of a very precise mind made real. I touched on the game actually in one of our Patreon exclusive bonus episodes one that we did all about architecture in game and you know i attributed the witness as being the best example of what is achievable in terms of game architecture because it's not just designing a building it's not just designing an area it's designing this i don't even know how to describe it because it it's everything is so perfectly designed and fits so perfectly with everything else in a way that it's just consistently mind-blowing. And scattered around this island are an enormous amount of panels bearing seemingly straightforward puzzles. The the puzzles all generally take the form of a a maze or a a grid, and you need to fulfil various criteria that are introduced over the course of the game in order to complete the puzzle. And the game teaches you about all these mechanics entirely organically. You'll, you'll come across, say, a panel and you'll 
need to guide a line through its maze to the exit. And completing that panel will power up another one in its series, I guess, that may introduce an icon in the maze that needs to be uh, collected en route to the exit in order to complete it. And then the next puzzle will develop that rule even further. And it's safe to say that over the games, I think there's about 650 puzzles in the game, that every single potential variant of this simple puzzle setup is explored. Sometimes the rules will be defined by elements on the grid, but sometimes its rules will be set by the environment around the puzzle or by attaining a certain perspective over the puzzle. It challenges every single preconception you may have about puzzle solving and about video games. The game stems from Jonathan Blow's desire to make the player experience sensations seemingly without any intervention from him. Most prominently, he wants the player to investigate, explore, observe and come to an independent epiphany. And when the player feels like they have reached that without any communication from the developer, the feeling of success is monumental. And your progress through the game is, is another factor that is discovered by you over the course of the game. You'll start finding structures that will be activated, some puzzles unlocking different doors to different areas. And the further and further you explore deeper into the island and the more you simply observe around its I guess I think there's about 11 or 12 like distinct areas you'll find more puzzles and it's not just panel maze puzzles just unraveling the mystery of what the island is why you're there what it all means these little things will, will keep you up at night in the same way that your paper cutouts and pencil sketches will like the mystery of the island took me back to another golden time in my life which was my discovery and subsequent obsession with the tv show lost <laughs> Yeah. Now, I absolutely adored that show, and and I didn't care that they were making weird shit up as they went along that didn't necessarily make sense and all of that, because my enjoyment of the episodes themselves only really made up half of my love of the show. The other aspect I got so much enjoyment from was discussing the show and all the relevant theories and ideas with, with my friends. And, and this is something that enabled me to find a, a firm group of mates at university, and we would spend many nights sat around a table in the SU quaffing pints of snake bite chatting about our wildest ideas of what the numbers meant or what the different hatches on the island meant or a million other mad things about polar bears and nonsense and much like how that show transcended its format to tap into a whole other strain of appreciation in my life so it was with witness and being able to discuss my various thoughts and theories with the two of you and that deepened my relationship with both of you and with the game I, I, I'm deliberately not talking about the puzzles themselves too specifically because I don't want to say too much about I mean, any, any element of the game because to deprive someone of discovering that themselves is to deprive them of one of the greatest sensations of exploration and discovery that I, I think it's possible to have, you know, short of selling all of your possessions and going and living in the Amazon rainforest, <laughs> which you don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to mention a couple of things. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put in the time in the episode you need to skip on to if you'd like to avoid any potential spoilers. And They're not really spoilers, but, you know, if you want to skip over it, you can. Good call. So I kind of want to skip as well. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah. Take your headphones out and we'll send a text in a minute saying come back. Yeah. OK, there cool. we go. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Spoiler alert. To avoid any potential spoilers for The Witness, please skip forward to 34 minutes and 50 seconds. You have been warned. 
so one element of the game that continually blew my mind, which was how some puzzles weren't even contained within the panels on the island at all, yeah. but were actually contained within the island itself. Like once you got used to seeing the puzzles and the you know the start point in the grids and the general angular makeup of them, you, you start to notice some familiar shapes and such around the island, and it, it's much like if you've been playing loads of Tetris and you'll start seeing tetraminos around in the world and and starting to see objects in terms of how they'd fit together. Isn't isn't that what is actually known as the Tetris effect? Uh, yes, yeah, it's it's kind of seeing that. As you're drifting off to sleep, almost it's it's called a hip- yeah. hypnagogic imagery. There we go. Stuff that's kind of like in that between state of of being awake and not. I get that a lot when I've been playing lots of Picross. Yeah, and I used to get it a lot when I was like obsessively playing Minesweeper. Yeah, but the wonderful thing about that in the Witness is that those shapes and lines really are there, <laughs> and if you get the perspective just right to align, say, like a fragment of a ruin in the distance with the blossom on a certain tree in the foreground to make a circle, which then extends along a bit of rock that resembles a line, you can click on the scene in front of you and interact with it in the way that you do with the puzzle panels themselves. And not only is that absolutely awe-inspiring when you discover it, it's then so much fun keeping your eyes peeled for similar revelations. Again, mind-blowing game design. <laughs> it's it's something else. Like The first few of those that I found, I was in a group on Facebook that we were talking about this game, and someone else had not yet made that realisation, and I assumed people had kind of found them. And, and I kind of alluded to these environmental puzzles and someone was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> just just shut response. the whole thing down. It was just like, yeah. delete the group, gone. We're not doing this anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Absolutely yeah. unbelievable. And one more thing. Minty mentioned last week about Rogue Leader and what an audacious move it was to open the game with the Death Star trench run set piece. A real statement from the developers to show us they meant business and, and they knew what the heck they were doing. But in terms of sheer audacity, (laughs) nothing, I say nothing eclipses the fact that the puzzle to unlock the final section of the witness is totally out in the open in the very first area where you begin. But you won't notice it at the start until you've got your head around all of the mechanics in the game that you learn as you play. And when you return to the start point and you know it's it's genius. And the level of confidence that Jonathan Blow had in his own game design is gobsmacking. I mean, arrogant, maybe? <laughs> yeah, that sort of hidden in plain sight thing is is something else, isn't it? But not really arrogant, because it's true. Yeah. Extraordinary. Minty, are you back? Hello, I'm back. Hey, Lovely. excellent. Okay. I know that the game is going to appear on Chris's list at some point. And I cannot wait to hear all of the metaphysical and existential <laughs> musings you have on the game. Like, like really, I, I, I cannot wait. And, you know, I may well discuss a lot more of the game on the back of what you choose to say. And if all the things I've said about the game haven't been enough justification as to its worth to me, then I'll end by mentioning one more thing. It also pays homage to a personal favourite film of mine by the slightly obscure Russian director, Andrei Tarkovsky. (laughs) The film is called Nostalgia. And I remember when I found that little moment in the game and I messaged you, Chris, just saying, did did Jonathan Blow make this game specifically for me? Yeah, yeah. It is such a strange coalescence of different facets of my life that it surely must have been constructed deliberately. 
I mean, this game is a game of unbelievable beauty and precision in its design. This game, it changed the way I looked at video games. It deepened my friendship with two of my closest friends. It's my 14th favourite video game of all time. It's it's The Witness. A perfect game. <laughs> it is a perfect game. Absolutely it perfect is. game. So, moving on, we have Chris's game. Christopher Dow, can you please tell us about your 14th favourite video game of all time? I remember getting the train to London several years ago, and it was for a seminar on A-level photography teaching, and it was entitled The Cogwheel Approach. And its aim was to explain the importance of understanding the components of exposure, like aperture, like shutter speed, like, like ISO, and, and to you know teach us or, or help us to understand how we could relay those components to our students. Now, within 12 months of doing this course, guidance from the exam board themselves would shift the focus away from that sort of technical teaching entirely. So basically just binning everything we'd paid to learn with them. But the main reason I remember this day so vividly was not the seminar at all. It was the walk back to Victoria Station afterwards, because once the course had finished, I was on my phone. I was wrestling with kind of really poor mobile signal to try and watch Nintendo reveal the Switch. (laughs) (laughs) I will be upfront and honest here. Nothing in that initial trailer grabbed my attention. Like I fired off a few tweets, a few kind of disgruntled messages to friends asking, what is the point of releasing a machine built on an old mobile chipset? What is the point in releasing a machine that was that underpowered at a time when the PS4 and the Xbox One seemed to be dominating sales? What was the point in releasing like a halfway house between a console and a handheld when the Vita was dead and the 3DS sales were flatlining? (laughs) Oh boy, what an idiot I was. <laughs> what a fool. I mean, the Switch is easily my favorite console to date. It, it eclipses mm. everything I've ever owned. And and now when I buy multi-platform games, I almost always choose the Switch, even if that port is kind of compromised in some way. Because if I if I look at why I want to play games, it's to be able to play them. And the crucial appeal of the Switch for me is that it makes games manageable by being a hybrid machine. And, and the main audience for the Switch, when, I, when that trailer was launched, that I really didn't realize at the time, was me, like people like me. <laughs> Someone who was you know, in their early 30s, whose time for gaming had dwindled, but they still had that fire and passion to, to want to kind of take part in this medium, but just didn't have the, the huge sort of time and space allowances that, that someone mm. might have done previously. The Switch also had... And I honestly don't think this following statement will be up for debate by anyone. (laughs) The best launch title of all time in Breath of the Wild. Yes. Like, unbelievably, given my tastes and personal history with the franchise, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is my 14th favourite video game of all time. Ah, how wonderful. Yeah. Like, this this game, like, (laughs) on, on release, Breath of the Wild absolutely blew my mind. And somehow years on, it still looks and feels better than just about any game released for any platform. Like it is an absolute piece of art. But so much of my personal enjoyment of this game, of of a game that is this big, like a game of this length and breadth, comes from the Switch itself. And in those early weeks, especially when I first got the console, when I first got Zelda, I'd play until late at night on the big screen. Then I'd stick the console in sleep. I'd wake up at six in the morning potter around whilst I have my breakfast and, and get ready to go to work and then yoink the machine out the dock and be in and playing and a gawp at that landscape again within seconds. You know, you know, actual seconds. This isn't like me hyperbolizing now. The switch is is almost instantaneous. And suddenly those 20 minutes I had before I left the house 
became usable gaming minutes <laughs> because the Switch was just so welcoming and so prepared for me. Then when I got home later that evening, I could hold the home button on the Pro Controller and suddenly that world was on my TV screen again. No progress lost, no hiccups, no performance dips. Zelda is as Zelda was. And <laughs> the immediacy of, of the Switch's operating system and that sort of near instantaneous resume drew me into a genre I seldom had or have time for. Like, of course, credit has to be given to Nintendo because it is a still in, in 2020, like a peerless take on the sprawling open world. Yeah. But I, I think it's hard to understate how important the Switch's particular form and function was in making a 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 hour <laughs> game feel inviting and achievable. Yeah. We're all older now. We've all got responsibilities in our lives and, and games jockey for our attention. But it's seldom that I'm able to commit the time to a daunting sort of AAA title in a way that lets me fully appreciate it. Like I, I feel I am time poor, like balancing a career and my partner and my family and my friends alongside my other hobbies. And it needs kind of a real, I don't know, like a TikTok investment to really enjoy because games take time to play big games. But the Switch, for all of its foibles, was this like gaming saviour for 30-somethings who still wanted to feel the magic of these big games. And the game itself, I mean, it's, it's all right, isn't it? <laughs> no, yeah. fucking hell. I mean, Breath of the Wild, with that evocative title, is a game about, and I haven't done this in a while, so here we go, boys. Yeah. It's a game about place, isn't it? It's a game about place. You bloody love like, games like, about place. <laughs> like, more oh. than almost any other game I've ever played, the star of Breath of the Wild is the landscape. It's just Hyrule itself. It's the wild. It's the breath of the wild. How satisfying is that subtitle to say? Yeah. The opening section of Breath of the Wild, when you're pottering around the Grand Plateau, getting to grips with how this particular iteration of Link feels to control, is really just the taster. It's like an hors d'oeuvre before the reveal of the main course. <laughs> and and that is that, that sweeping shot away from your perch that's been copied a hundred times now by other games. But it lets you know in that instance that everything you can see is yours to explore. And everything that you can see is yours to explore at your leisure. And as, as you start opening this game up, every single blade of grass or bank or pool of water or tower or hazard or encampment, you can take them, you can leave them. It doesn't matter. It's a huge playground that is just for you to, to live in and explore. On my first night with this game, I spent 20 minutes just watching distant lightning strike the earth. Another night, I'd spend half an hour just scrambling up a cliffside, looking for pockets of kind of flat land to rest on just to see if I could get up there. A different morning, I spent 45 minutes just using a coroc leaf to propel a raft around an expanse of water. I'd spend hours just chasing horses. <laughs> <laughs> when others like you and Minty especially were, were boasting about beating the shrines and, and freeing the divine beasts, I was just existing, yeah. like being continually surprised that with a combination of chests or special enemies or, or the hidden seeds, every detour I took in this humongous map was being rewarded. Like every single time, there is never a corner of this map that you you fight your way to and then go, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just go back then. There's always something for you to pick up and be like, no, that was worth it, actually. That was worth <laughs> that time. But the breadth of the title's wild is, is the thing I think is most important about this game. Because it's a game of really like harsh climates and, and Hyrule's extremities. And, and it's a game about nature at its most unforgiving. Like it's, it's all about survival and forcing you to adapt. Like the opening hours, especially as you begin to accidentally rub up against environmental factors you're not really equipped to deal with, like hot and cold, 
as you're taken down brutally by the relentless pursuit of the Guardians. The breath of this title, like feeling it on your face and finding your place within the wilds, like it is positively elegiac. It is a, a deeply spiritual game, I think, that pays reverence to the environment in a way that's almost paganistic, almost druidic. Like the, the environment is is really the star <laughs> of this show. I'm also, and this is the controversial point, going to go on record here as saying that I love the weapon durability in this game because it feels so thematically perfect for what this world is trying to be that it is a game about scavenging and existing alongside nature and its systems and for the story as well like huge swathes of Hyrule that you know and love from other Zelda games has been destroyed in this timeline and if buildings and towns and ranches have been leveled of course your piddly little shitty sword is going to be leveled as well like it's, it's a game that embraces object permanence or, or rather like impermanence i guess and and shows that there are consequences to every sword hit and because of that it pushes you to explore your options way more than than any other game and i think the the, the kind of choice that nintendo made with that is is bore out as a positive by the way that people are still going viral today with these 30 second clips from the switch of these insane guardian takedowns you know, with people kind of like flipping over buildings or lifting themselves into the air off like a, a carefully placed bomb, because there's just no end to the way that you can paint with the materials this game gives you. It's it's just such such an open-ended thing that you really can approach in, in whatever way you want to. I think Breath of the Wild is the best launch title of all time on any system. For me, certainly, I think it's, it's the best Zelda title I've played. I, I think it is a masterpiece of environmental and mechanical design. And realistically this is one of the most essential purchases for the, for anyone that owns a switch like if you don't have this in your library you're, you're missing the point of owning this console and going back to that time walking through to, to victoria station coming home from london i'm deeply sorry that i ever doubted nintendo because like like i said that trailer just did not click with me and it was only kind of as the hype built up over time that i thought no you know i'll, I'll get the console i'll give it a go that I, I realised just, just how important it's been in my own life and my own relationship with games to have the Switch on my side. Yeah, what a game. What a game. We're talking about perfect games. This is one of them. This is, this is a, an 11 out of 10, isn't it? You can't, you can't quantify this game. It is something else. So yeah, Breath of the Wild. A Zelda title, unbelievably, in, uh, in my top 20. There you go. So, bring us on home. Minty Booth, what is your 14th favourite video game of all time? There's nothing like a good plot twist, is there? Something uh, delightful and unexpected to really tug at the metaphorical fish hook that's just been resting gently in your cheek as you poot along a <laughs> to that point formulaic story. <laughs> we love them. We love them. Uh, Brad Pitt wasn't real. Uh, Darth Vader was a sex haver. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of going to heaven, Bruce Willis decided to hang out with a little boy. <laughs> Boris Johnson's turned out to be really shit. <laughs> One of the best twists I've ever seen in a video game is in today's pick. And it's a game that is quite obscure and most likely is never going to be remade. So I really don't mind spoiling. <sighs> no. Um... No, I don't think I want to, actually. <laughs> um, fuck. That's... <laughs> okay, that's this. Oh, I can't really use this script. Okay, we're going to do it live. <laughs> <laughs> Today's game is Bankaitos, Eternal Wings and oh, the Lost Ocean. Wow, wow. And strap in, because this game is absolutely enormous and it nears perfection in so many ways. 
I've been caught out a couple of times playing games with big stories that turned out to be even bigger than I imagined. For example, I didn't realise that Link to the Past had an entire huge second part until I beat Aghanim for the first time and he drags you into the dark world. This is another one of those times. You start off as a, as, as, as a mysterious young amnesiac who's motivated by one thing. Revenge on the man who killed his brother and grandfather. This personal quest coincides with a much bigger objective, as it often does in those sort of party-based JRPGs. Here it's a side narrative to stopping the maniacal emperor collecting the five pieces of an ancient malevolent god to use its power to live forever. One of the core mechanics of this game is being able to trap the essence of an item in things called the Magnus, so that you can then release their properties later to solve puzzles or fight enemies. The magnus that contains the parts of the gods the emperor wants are called the end magnus, so you know that if they all come together in the wrong hands then shit's going to go down. So far so good, you travel around the different lands collecting the end magnus before he can get his hands on them. There's a few bumps in the road with some of the end magnus going missing here and there. Is it carelessness or some darker force at play? Hmm. Hmm. Anywho, you confront the emperor and shock. He uses the End Magnus's power to transform into a monstrous entity that you defeat in a thrilling climax. Great stuff. Good game. <laughs> then the plot twist happens, and oh wow, there's another two-thirds of this bastard to play through. I've already been at this for about 25 hours. That's all I'm going to say about the plot. The first time I played through it, I got to that point and I was so flummoxed at what happened and kind of got a little overwhelmed with how the plot twist would affect the rest of the game, so much so that I had to have a nap and a little cry. I was 17 years old. <laughs> it's a stunning game to look at. It uses fixed camera angles and pre-render graphics, but because you're not having to interact with anything in a more involved way than just sort of pressing A to talk to someone or pressing a button, it's fine. There's no janky aiming system to wrestle with, just gorgeous set pieces that match the level of detail with, uh, with the variety of each set piece. All notions of realism and normality are shrugged off as you explore villages made of uh, confectionery, strange towns where everything is 2D and straight out of a children's picture book, imposing imperial cities clad entirely in gold, and grand castles made out of clouds. It's not only delightful to look at, but a real pleasure to hear about where you're going to next and anticipating just how magical it's going to be, and never being disappointed. The fixed camera is also incorporated into some gameplay set pieces as well. One that springs to mind is the Labyrinth of Mirrors that coats the screen in shards of glass, and using the fixed camera and the reflections on the different shards as reference points, uh, you have to navigate this room, which adds a nice sort of puzzly twist mm. to exploring a room that I'm pretty sure was just a square with a bit of a wiggly bridge. <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, trapping an item's essence in the Magnus is a core gameplay mechanic, particularly in combat. Magnus are essentially gussied up cards, and the ones that you use in battle are swords, shields, guns, magic potions, food, and a camera. More on that last one later. Each card has its own stats based on the weapon or armor trapped inside. Short Sword Magnus has four attack and no elemental attributes. But then the, uh, the late game Esperanza has 215 attack, with 129 of that power being dealt as chrono damage. Elements come in pairs, so a creature weak to fire is strong against water, Light creatures are weak to darkness, and chrono enemies are weak to wind, and vice versa. 
Deck building is a key component of this game and really gives you a wonderful degree of control over your characters. They've also got numbers around the edges and if you make poker hands with them, like full houses or straights, etc, then you get attack or defense bonuses too when you're fighting. It's incredibly satisfying drawing a hand of all your best weapons and then getting a straight and one-shotting an enemy or boss that had been giving you trouble before. It adds a nice puzzly element to combat which is all the more stronger for it, I think. So the game looks good, it plays well, and it has a great story. I think that's enough to uh, solidify its place here. Only joking, the score is the best part of the game. <laughs> Expertly crafted to each situation, with very few of the tracks being reused. There's, there's gentle classical guitar for the world map, as the five islands gently undulate against the bright blue sky. Exciting little sprinkles of synth here and there to give a nice celestial feel to a game already heavily influenced by stars and the constellations. And there really is nothing like a killer guitar lick to make you feel like a real hero when you're using a deck of cards to fight a giant iguana. <laughs> <laughs> but there is one thing that holds this game back from being a true masterpiece, a true piece of perfection. It's got quite literally the worst voice acting I've ever heard. <laughs> I think they blew all their budget on the music. The pre-ended artwork and an entire village of people just to sit down and come up with wacky ideas for the environments and one-upping each other's great story beat ideas. <laughs> when it came to getting the dialogue recorded, they didn't have enough money to get a director, so they just didn't use one. And instead of buying a microphone, they just used an empty milk bottle. <laughs> There's a weird charm to it, but it's nowhere near as charming as using actual voice talent. One of the characters that voice the dialogue that has voice dialogue is a child, which is particularly excruciating. Child actors are mostly shite anyways, <laughs> so getting in a child of the caliber of the adults that are dire to begin with ends up exactly how you might expect. It's horrible, and I resent how important that child is in sneaking into Lord Rodolfo's manor on the island of Sadal Sud. That's enough of that. That was that was tough to get through. <laughs> it was, yeah. Imagine that being a 300-hour game. New. You can use different combinations in battle to increase the level of some Magnus or age them in real time to change them completely. For example, wait four hours for the Rice Magnus to turn into Rice Paste, which you can then play to paralyze enemies in battle. Or play it in the same turn as the Vinegar Magnus to create Sushi Rice, which heals you instead. Yet another dimension to the inventory and battle system. Also, enemies don't drop money because where would they get it? What use do they have for currency and capitalism? Instead, you make money by taking photos of them with the camera Magnus, and then you wait for them to develop and sell them. It's an interesting use of time that leads to my final bit of trivia for this game. A 100% speedrun takes quite a long time due to one particular Magnus, the Shampoo, <laughs> evolving into the Splendid Hair Magnus after 336 hours. The flavour text on the Splendid Hair Magnus says, after two weeks of constant shampoo use, your hair is super silky or some silly shit like that. <laughs> so there we go, yeah. Batankaitos, Eternal Wings and the Lost Ocean. So wonderful, so involving, and so just so good. Wow. I've never played it, and I'm gutted because I know it's incredible. The fact that 
the team that made it went on to make Xenoblade Chronicles is proof that I know I would love it. The soundtrack I know very well because it's by Motoi Sakuraba, who's possibly the mm-hmm. best video games <clears throat> composer of all time. Oh yeah, the soundtrack yeah. is phenomenal. But the thing that turned me off it was the fact that the battles were card based because at that point I, for whatever fucking stupid reason, was hung up on the idea of what an RPG actually was. And if an RPG wasn't (laughs) turn-based combat, then it wasn't a real RPG. And I was livid that this game had done this when it looked so great. Obviously, that didn't change the fact that the game was great because it was just simply a different way of making a game. And I uh, foolishly um, let it pass me by. Idiot. Absolute idiot. I think it is probably one of my favourite combat mechanics, Mm. thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think at that time I was... You know, I didn't want to learn something new. I just, I, I thought I wanted more of the same of the things that I loved, which is obviously very, very closed, closed-minded, short-sighted. Hmm. If I see it anywhere at any point in a shop, I might buy it. Got my GameCube rigged up. Yeah, put down a second mortgage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's expensive. There was a sequel or a prequel, I think it was. A prequel, yes. Origins. Yeah. Did you play did you play that as well? No, I couldn't get a hold of it. Um... It was either coming out just as I was starting to really get into JRPG, mm. so the import prices were just astronomical. Yeah. Or it or it just never got released. Uh yeah, it's actually looking at it, it didn't get released in, in Europe. No. So you, you would have had the issue of the power ntsc compatibility to, to actually play it anyway yeah, yeah apparently at one point they were developing a ds bait and kytos game they were but uh yeah, but that never, never happened, never, never so, happened. You know, none taken <laughs> exactly yeah exactly well, maybe they shelved it to bring out the collection on the switch along with the sort of upscaled ds version for the switch I have emailed them about this to register my Good. interest. And Good, at least, I, yeah. I hope that many other people have done as well. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we see that. So there we have it. Three absolute bangers. First of all, we had The Witness. Then we had... The Cockin' Breath of the Wild. And finally... Batankaitos, Eternal Wings and the Lost Ocean just extraordinary stuff absolutely amazing if you've enjoyed this episode please do share the podcast on social media very much appreciate it if you did that you can reach out to us on our various social media channels search for us on youtube instagram at o3c podcast twitch at o3c podcast you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash o3cents you can chat to us there about games that you're playing your opinions on some of these games or you can take us to task on our opinions on a more personal level by directly contacting us on our twitter handles i am at jonathan dunn i am the at symbol chaz underscore hodges bring it on clement underscore boo boo and if you're really enjoying what we're doing please do check out our patreon page patreon.com slash our three cents check out some of the amazing perks we have on offer there and please join us next week in a celebration of the unluckiest games of all time our 13th (laughs) favorites (laughs) pack away your ladders and your bananas Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO, Editor-in-Chief, over there at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to the ShackCast, the official Shack News podcast of Shack News, uh, over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hunter Hunter, Yu Hakusho, Literary Analysis, Comparative Localization. 
JoJo references. The works of Yoshihiro Togashi hold a specific kind of magic, and the people who seek to examine their roots and spiritual descendants are known as the Spirit Hunters, available on the Greenlit Podcast Network.